Welcome once again to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar, and Oscar Race Checkpoint for you, and a two-part Oscar Race Checkpoint at that. I am your co-host, Mike One. This is co-host also, Mike. Yeah, today's part one is going to begin with a bunch of news stories. We got some Academy updates, some film festival news. Mike is going to take us through the labor talks and all the kerfuffles and nonsense involved with those, and uh, we'll finish with like this dual box office report slash I'm also going to review four movies including The Flash, Indiana Jones, No Hard Feelings, and Joyride uh, to, end the, to end the episode. And then next episode, Mike, we got the HCA Midseason Awards. Uh, talk about another kerfuffle with the Turner Classic Movies thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, some WB screwing around, screwing around with people's lives again. Doesn't sound like them. That yeah. Thing, it sounds very un, un-Zaslavian. And then we got like all of this release date, calendar movement, and nine trailers to review. So this is like this huge two-part Oscar Race Checkpoint catch-up episode, in a way. Yes, and uh, if you're looking for the screaming and yelling about the upcoming Avatar movies that are taking us up through the 2030s, (laughs) that'll be next episode. Yes, it's coming. (laughs) But we'll begin with some Academy news. They expanded the theatrical release requirements for Best Picture eligibility. Scott Feinberg has been all over this, and uh, let's kind of remind you guys what's what's been the rule and what's the, what the new rule is. All right, so the old rule was a seven-day theatrical release in one of the quote-unquote big six U.S. cities, New York, L.A., Atlanta. I remember those three being involved. Hartford, New Haven, Portland, Maine. <laughs> yes, those are the other three, <laughs> the lobster belt. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, the new rule is you keep the seven-day in the big six U.S. cities, right? And then the film must expand for another seven days into 10 of the top 50 U.S. markets. And this seven-day run, this can be consecutive or non-consecutive, but it must happen within the first 45 days of initial release. Yeah, well-intentioned and well-meaning, but as we're going to talk about, probably doesn't affect things too much in reality. But here's part of the Academy statement from the Feinberg article as well. Quote, in support of our mission to celebrate and honor the arts and sciences of movie making, it is our hope that this expanded theatrical footprint will increase the visibility of films worldwide and encourage audiences to experience our art form in a theatrical setting. Based on many conversations with industry partners, we feel that this evolution benefits film artists and movie lovers alike. That's from Bill Kramer and Jan. Janet Yang in a joint statement. We have some caveats and some exceptions to the rule here. Late in the year expansions in terms of platform releases that may come out, uh, whether it's New Year's or Christmas, that are just playing in New York and L.A., whatever. When they have to complete this eligibility requirement by January 24th of the following year, and anything expanding after January 10th must verify their release plans to the Academy. Uh, They also say that the top 15 international cities can count towards two of your 10 
uh, what would have been U.S. markets in terms of the eligibility requirement there, but you still have to release in eight of the top 50 U.S. cities in that case. That's interesting. So they're really skewing that still domestic heavy, mm-hmm. which makes sense. The Oscars are inherently a very American event, obviously. Um, but again, it doesn't seem like it's changing too much or affecting. I mean, you, on first blush, I read this and I was like, oh, this is targeted squarely at Netflix. But Netflix has been compliant within what it, even this new rule is in the past, right? Yes. And, and Scott hammers this home. I think this is clarifying things for international films as the best picture race has shifted towards yeah. international features. And Scott's going to talk about or we're going to talk about Scott. We're going to aggregate Scott and in, in discussing the documentary features that may want to <laughs> contend for best picture as well. So Scott goes on to say that all streaming films previously nominated for best picture from Netflix, Apple, and Amazon, they all would have qualified for these new standards. That includes Amazon Sound of Metal, Apple's Coda, and all nine Netflix Best Picture noms. All 11 of those films from those streamers did at least 100 screens and included 10 of the top U.S. markets. International features have been nominated for Best Picture. Animated features have been nominated for Best Picture, though not since uh, 2010 with Toy Story 3. Look, I think documentary features are rising in in esteem and we've talked about the fact that this could be a possibility in recent years it's certainly with uh, docs winning major film festivals like last year's venice and, and certainly vying for this year's Cannes palm palm dior award uh, feinberg says that this rule and this rule expansion is actually a bit prohibitive towards documentary features gaining best picture momentum because a lot of the doc features do not expand at all in theaters a lot of those films as we've covered mike they're shunned by the academy in many many ways for being too popular by that bizarre ass branch of documentary documentarians (laughs) there they're nuts which hates the best of them (laughs) they hate the most popular and lucrative of these films so it's hard to mount a similar type of campaign in that regard it would really have to be a four quadrant documentary and by quadrants even then yeah i mean the four quadrants (laughs) of journalists journalists in the documentary feature branch of course it's it's uh the doc feature branch is one quadrant quadrant those who enjoy pcp (laughs) is the second quadrant like it's not they they, but so yeah this does target documentaries more than anything and scott i think hits the nail on the head there uh what else is new but so I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is going to be prohibitive to documentaries because if there's a very popular documentary, a lot of times a lot of the docs have very, very small distributors if they get distributors at all. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to be able to play all these markets. But then I'm thinking, well, if a documentary is popular enough to have enough momentum to be a Best Picture nominee, then certainly a Neon or an A24 or somebody, some big uh, distributor is going to scoop it up anyway and help its distribution. So I, I, I guess it wouldn't really matter. Uh, Moonage Daydream, Won't You Be My Neighbor, films like that, it's not going to affect anything. But obviously, you know, some of these runaway documentaries like Netflix has had, Icarus or Mm. American Factory, they they seem to, to face an uphill climb here in terms of best picture eligibility because they're not going to want to expand that often. You know, I guess it helps the the profile of distributors because any doc that has momentum and has their eyes on like making history is gonna it's gonna have to be shuffled towards a major distributor or a major studio. 
for distribution. Yes, and 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 yet those movies typically don't get nominated to begin with. Right. I mean, it's just right. like I would That's love true. it too, but it's they're not playing by the same rules in a way. It's what just, is, I bizarre. mean, maybe maybe just Questlove had it figured out. I don't know how he slipped by. He was the favorite, wire to wire, and he got nominated, and he won. And even then, he didn't get his moment because Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. That's right. So it's always something weird going on with the documentary feature category. That's for sure. Maybe the next Summer of Souls got a shot, but other than that, yeah. we'll see. <laughs> we'll move on. The Academy conducted a lot of its annual business since our last Oscar race checkpoint news show, uh, including here their most recent election for the Board of Governors. Uh, a reminder here on what the Board of Governors looks like, their composition. There are three governors for each of the 18 branches within the Academy, except for the new production and technology branch, which has one. Uh, there are otherwise three governors at large. So the governors is like a 50-plus person body right now? Yeah, 54-person yeah. body, which Scott wants uh, reduced, let's just say. It's a bit unwieldy, as Janet Yang has said on many occasions, and yet they have not made that change uh, at the moment. Uh, but here are some highlights, at least in terms of my shameless sense of mentioning some of the bigger, <laughs> more recognizable names involved. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we have term limits cycled out uh, for the likes of Whoopi Goldberg and Mandy Walker. Uh, we have 11 new governors elected, like actor Lou Diamond Phillips, writer Damon, Dana Stevens of City of Angels for the Love of the Game, big 90s movie writer, screenwriter City there. City of Angels was a great soundtrack, too. <laughs> it was a great soundtrack. Uh, for the love of the game, not as good of a soundtrack. but No. Uh, John C. Riley was the catcher. That's right. He was yeah. the catcher. That yeah. movie is not a good rewatch. I just wanna, Nor was it a good watch, I would argue. It's, I just want that on the record. I don't know why, but I remember watching that movie like with a lot of family when I was younger, and everybody yeah. in my family loved it, and I tried to rewatch it of late. <sighs> we that For some reason... We, we were in middle school. We would go to the movies all the time. We would actually go to what was what was the Podunk Theater down the hill here. Right. And uh, for I don't. We were in like seventh grade, and we went to see For Love of the Game as a group. And I just remember being excited for it, and then being like, "This is so boring." <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I was talking about new governors, and we went on a tangent on For the Love of the Game and our mutual hatred for it. Poor Dana Stevens, who but sorry, Dana. she's a new governor at the Academy elected. Great job. The executive Anna Mingella of the Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse also elected there. Six governors were re-elected, including Ava DuVernay. Otherwise, we have 37 sitting governors going into additional terms, including Jason Blum, Pam Abdi of WB, Jason Reitman, Marley Matlin, and Rita Wilson, as we said 54 total, and the breakdown is this, 53% women and 25% underrepresented racial or ethnic groups. I mean, as far as voting bodies or ruling bodies or executive bodies go with what we talk about here, uh, mm. having one here in the academy that's more than half women, a quarter of the underrepresented groups, wish that was a little higher, but, you know, that's, that's not a bad breakdown. It's a better breakdown than the, than the actual Academy membership themselves, as we'll get yeah. into here, Michael. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Academy did welcome almost 400 new members, 398 new members, some notable names. I get to talk about famous people for a second now. Mm -hmm. uh, Daniel Kwan, Daniel Scheinart, I uh, wonder what they've done lately. Kiwe Kwan also in there, Stephanie Sue. So basically, if you were in or around Everything Everywhere all at once last year, yeah. welcome to the Academy. Ten names, in fact, from Everything Everywhere. <laughs> 
uh, David Byrne in there. Paul Rogers, Shirley Carrada are the others. Uh, Ed Berger and James Friend of All Quiet on the Western Front. Charlotte Wells and Paul Mezcal from Aftersun. This won't be the last time you hear Mezcal's name mentioned this episode. Otherwise, Austin Butler, Lashana Lynch, Carrie Condon, Zar Amir Ibrahimi, Dolly DeLeon, Park Hail, Rosa Salazar, Bill Hader, Selma Blair, Vicky Creeps, Kiki Palmer, and RRR's N.T. Rama Rao Jr. and Ram Sharan Owen Zasloff are among the notable... Because he's done so much for film in his short time, so why not? Notable new Academy members yeah. there. I like listing those. I always enjoy that because it's a lot of the success stories of the previous year. Yes. So that is fun. Yes, that is that is fun. And Zasloff. Uh, with the addition of the 2023 class, 34% of Academy members identify as women, 18% are from underrepresented ethnic and racial communities, and 20% are from countries or territories outside the U.S. Those stats come to us from Eric Anderson of AwardsWatch.com. Yeah, this is still a sausage fest. Uh, Not great. In, in many ways. Uh, but... Turning the page there, we finally know the honorees of this year's Governor's Awards. Honorary Oscars will go to Angela Bassett, of course, yeah. of the she, Black uh, She won that as soon as she was just death-staring last year during the awards ceremony. She I think. deserves it, though. She's got sure the does. legacy of it. So Absolutely. All right. So I'm, I'm okay with this maneuver, even though I, I want I was okay win. with her staring daggers for not winning last yeah. year. I mean, I that, her to that, win that's a totally, yeah, totally Oscar okay. Too. But, uh... Uh, obviously, What's Love Got to Do With It, that's her other Oscar nomination. She's also been in Soul, Strange Days, uh, Waiting to Exhale, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We a have Mel Brooks, a favorite of ours, Michael, mm-hmm. getting uh, an honorary Oscar here. Young Frankenstein, the producers, Spaceballs, History of the World Part 1, etc., etc., in terms of his career. Carol Littleton, the editor of E.T., The Extraterrestrial, Silverado, The Big Chill, Body Heat, Dreamcatcher, and 2004's Manchurian Candidate is getting one as well, as is Michelle Satter of the Sundance Institute. She's getting the Jean Hersha Humanitarian Award. Herschelt is the correct way to pronounce that. I can't read or speak. Yeah, I think Michael J. Fox got that last year. So, mm-hmm. yeah, some heavy hitters, some great careers getting honored uh, with these honorary Oscars. Angela Bassett, she needs a real one. Not that this, you know, I should. That's the that's the temptation, right? You're not calling this a real Oscar. It's still a real Oscar. However, I wanted to win a competition Oscar because I'm just I'm bitter, and I picked her right up until the end last year, which was probably uh, what do they say about captains and ships? <laughs> I have no idea. I go down with the ship. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> All I was thinking was Captain Phillips, and I'm the captain now. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you're, you you were born, and you've been locked in a certain time in the, in a loop. I would say. Look at me. Look at me. <laughs> Let's talk about some festival news. Toronto and TIFF, uh, their lineup is forthcoming, but we did get the first announcement of their early lineup, and that's going to be next goal wins from Taika Waititi. Something we've been previewing for years here. Yes, years and years. I almost <laughs> feel like it. It, you know, pre pre uh, what's a preclude? No, precludes the wrong precursor. It's a precursor of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. The mm. next goal wins preview uh, yes. by Film Twitter and the film uh, media at large. 
It's, we, it started the same year our podcast did, which was six <laughs> years ago. Look, Taika Waititi had uh, tremendous success with Jojo Rabbit, Rabbit or Rabbit, surprising mm-hmm. a lot of people uh, by winning that Grosch Audience Award, the People's Choice Award, back in 2019. So it's not a surprise that they want to run it back with the same studio, Searchlight, the same filmmakers. Uh, bringing it back to Toronto as a launch point for next goal wins, that does make some sense. Yeah, sure. That's where, you know, the first polarizing reviews when uh, when Jojo Rabbit came out, and then it was a surprise that it won the Grolsch, and then it went on to Oscar success. So, yeah, the blueprint's already there for a previous Taika film. Why wouldn't he do tr- try to replicate that success again? Makes a lot of sense, like you said. And otherwise, as far as film festivals go, we have a film festival prize winner to comment on. It's the Tunisian documentary Four Daughters. That won the top prize at the Munich Film Festival. Yeah, Four Daughters winning is important to note here because Four Daughters also won the Golden Eye at Cannes. So... In the vacuum that is documentary feature right now, according to many like the esteemed Ann Thompson of IndieWire, she's been talking about how we don't have that category shaped out yet or shaped up in mm-hmm. terms of likely nominees. We've seen documentary feature like the Summer of Soul Year put forward some early contenders that seem like shoo-ins much earlier than this year because this year we only have like the eternal memory and beyond utopia a couple international documentaries at sundance and four daughters joins that group now that it won two of the bigger earlier you know film festival awards so munich and now can so if four daughters is eligible because i mean i was looking through the rules i didn't see anything that would pre preclude it to use that word correctly now okay good job four daughters does have a lot of reenactments there is a lot of uh i guess just fictional narrative storytelling involved it seems from its unique and innovative story structure and telling this documentary features story but how much of that could make it ineligible i don't know i gotta i gotta dive through those rules a bit more what was that one was it last year or the year before that was a contender in doc feature animated feature from sundance yeah i think oh i know it's a neon film now yeah it did it got oh my god hold on folks (laughs) bringing this program to a grinding halt (laughs) with an (laughs) off-the-cuff question that i don't know the answer to uh, flee, Michael, flee. Yeah, all right. So was didn't that have a lot of uh, fictional elements, or, or at least like animated elements within it? Like storytelling elements, I'm trying to say? You're right. You're right. That was, so that was still up. Animated story. Yeah, you're right. Feature, that was yeah, still up so. for it. No, good I point. Wonder. That actually came around to a really good point. You see that? I land the plane every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> good job. Anyway, Michael, you got to explain this to me, and you, you do here if I read your copy properly. Nobody is going to Comic-Con. WTF is going on here. Yeah, well, nobody except the fans, which is going to be something. But So the big names at Comic-Con, which is the annual gathering in San Diego there in late July, which is supposed to be this huge 
kickoff event or preview event. You get a lot of uh, the stars from the upcoming movies and previews that are sure. shown for the first time, et People cetera, People know et what Comic-Con is, Mike. Yeah, it, it. All right. I just I was mansplaining <laughs> it. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's going to be radically different this year. Disney, Netflix, Sony, HBO, and Universal, they are all skipping panels this year. They will not have a presence at Comic-Con. Uh, WB and Max, not HBO, uh, even though it, it is HBO, even though it's, it's also Discovery, so it's not HBO, and they don't want you to think it's whatever. Max may still appear. Paramount seems to be going forward with some presence as they have the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie uh, debuting worldwide shortly mm-hmm. after Comic-Con. But uh, that's kind of the layout of the major usual faces and studios that show up at Comic-Con. There's other studios like Apple that are tight-lipped. They, don't, they haven't said what they're going to do. And it all seems to be tied into... The writer's strike, or not the writer's strike, I'm sorry, but the SAG-AFTRA strike, or the potential SAG-AFTRA strike, which was originally scheduled to kick off on July 1st, but just a few days ago, both SAG-AFTRA and the AMPTP agreed to a 12-day window for further negotiations, Hmm. so San Diego Comic-Con is kind of left in no man's land here. So, do you think if SAG settles, all of these studios will whip up a little Comic-Con panel or two or ten? From what I read and what I understand, the schedules for Comic-Con go out July 5th. So I think it'll be too late. I don't think there's going to be... I mean, by the time this... If this does settle, it probably won't settle until the 11th or 12th anyway, which will be a week after all the schedules have been put in place for Comic-Con. I don't remember the date that San Diego Comic-Con kicks off, but I, I don't think that'll happen. I mean, there's going to be... People, I mean, obviously fans, but there's going to be like illustrators and artists and writers that are going to be there. They just won't be the, the movie stars and the big headline grabbing type events this year. And I, it makes me wonder if Comic-Con is going to kind of go the way of what E3 did, which used to be this giant headlight, headline making fan event uh, for video games. All the major video game studios and companies would go there and they debut. It'd be the exact same thing, essentially. And then that got parsed down one year and they turned it into just an industry event, no fans. And then the pandemic happened and then there was no E3 and then it got smaller and smaller and now they tried to bring E3 back this year and there just wasn't enough motivation, excitement, or interest to do it so it got called off for good. So if you get to this point with Comic-Con now where studios... I mean, regardless of the strike, if studios can figure out, well, people are watching our previews on YouTube and online anyway, and there's there's general fan excitement for certain comic book movies still, uh, I could see studios skipping Comic-Con in the future and not worrying about the cost of getting all the talent out there and having to pay for a presence as it is. They might be a, might be a way to cut down on some overhead. At first, I wondered if you were jumping to conclusions that were a bit too far afield, and then you remember that, well... Disney does its own expo. Now. Yeah, and that's where it came out of, like the Tadum or Tadum. Netflix does pronounce its it. own thing. DC is all have forever for the last few years done their own thing. Like they, these, there's reasons that they're doing these, and it's because they can keep everything in house and get a cut of the profit for it. And we do notice a decline in terms of superhero movies, at least at the moment. I do wonder if. An E3 type of video game movie fandom, super fandom turned into movies could be a new thing. And if Comic-Con could start doing some of that, but that would be you mean taking You mean biting into taking actual video games and posting them at Comic-Con? The next wave of adaptations, what is it going to be? It sure as hell looks like it's video games. 
right? Yeah. That's the next story mining operation that's going to happen in full thrust. I know? guess it's possible, yeah, because, I mean, there is no E3 anymore. I think there's um, the Consumer Electronic Expo, I think, is still going on, which is a, a different one. But, yeah, I mean, it's certainly possible. Why not? And there is a natural crossover, like you're saying, between comics, movies, and video games. Sure. So the CEE is coming. That's the next big thing. You mm. just you just coined it. How do we get an underground floor of that? <laughs> is there like a dumb money movie trailer of in our future? Just two guys who are podcasting came up with the next idea. No, that's yes, a, yes, <laughs> there is. But it's, it's been done already. Two guys are driving this whole operation. <laughs> anyway, we got to get into some real important news as you just uh, discussed here with the the labor talks and. SAG-AFTRA, they extended their negotiating deadline, like you just said, to July 12th. And I'm wondering what this means because they haven't come to a deal yet, of course, but they didn't let they didn't let the SAG strike happen on July 1st, Michael. Yeah, so I, I, there's been some theories and some hearsay thrown around as to why that happened. I'll get into it. But so, yes, there is a 12 day extension between SAG AFTRA and the AMPTP because uh, if there was no deal struck by July 1st, that's when SAG was going to strike. We talked about that previously. They had a 98% uh, support within their SAG ranks, within their responding members saying they okay a strike. But uh, it, it didn't happen, so now it could happen on July 12th instead of July 1st. And there's mm -hmm. actually some drama within SAG itself with regards to confidence in SAG after President Fran Drescher and her ability to negotiate a transforma transformative deal. Uh, that was brought to the forefront on the 27th of June when some of the biggest acting names in the industry co-signed a letter uh, which said the following. Mike, go ahead. Quote, SAG-AFTRA members may be ready to make sacrifices that the leadership is not, unquote. Uh, the group added, quote, we feel that our wages, our craft, our creative freedom, and the power of our union have all been undermined in the last decade. We need to reverse those trajectories, unquote. Michael, before you get, on, get into this, we just watched a very heated, contested SAG-AFTRA elections process. Matthew Modine was on the other side of that, correct? Mm -hmm. Is this Actually, just think, yeah. is this just some polarization where the other side is probably giving the leadership a vote of no confidence because they're so far afield from them just in terms of their politics? Or do you think this was really uh this is really a schism in, in SAG AFTRA? I think it's the the latter rather than the former. I mean, there were some heavy-hitting names signed up to this letter, like Meryl Streep, Jennifer Lawrence, Laura Linney, Quinta Brunson. It had uh, hundreds of names attached to it, and some of them are, are big-time names in the acting field on both TV and movie. Um, hmm. I think this is a, a serious threat, and there was there's been all kinds of articles in the trades talking about how Fran Drescher and uh, the the attorney negotiating alongside her for SAG-AFTRA has cited there's been good progress made with the AMPTP, and that's kind of raised a red flag to some members worrying that Fran Drescher and company may be making too many concessions in a time where SAG really wants a big deal that, like, like what the WGA wants, like what the DGA got, comments on AI and comments on healthcare and comments on, uh, you know, all sorts of new residual stuff. I also read um, uh, a piece through uh, Bellany's uh, piece there. I think it was Puck, actually. Right. 
talking about how this may be a tactical move by SAG-AFTRA to move the date from the 1st to the 12th because they were worried that there wasn't going to be enough media coverage on July 4th weekend, which is when this the clock would have been up and SAG would have been on strike. So hmm. they wanted to move it to you know the middle of the month where they thought they could get more media coverage. They feel it would be more impactful if they do go on strike and they would have the runway to say what they want in the outlets to kind of make some noise as opposed to having to worry about the elongated July 4th weekend uh, this week. So if that's the case, then yeah, I, I definitely think this is a, a letter that means more. Okay. Forgive me for being cynical here, but the DGA got the AMTP whatever the hell they can never get AMPTP yep they got the PCPTP to say that (laughs) robots are not people and to give people who are directors like just common employment rights like paternity leave and maternity leave and such things like (sighs) Yeah, maybe you can get that for a gig economy deal that the you know for the actors here. I I I, I hope so. I hope you can get that in 2023. Basic human decency. Yeah, yeah nice. that would be good. Um, but I will not stand for you <laughs> besmirching the good actors' names here and saying that they would want more publicity for their publicity stunt. How dare you! <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not me saying it. <laughs> no, it probably makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I mean, look, I think I think there is something to that, that, like, you know, they want to make sure that, I, obviously, the trades would cover it, but if you get, like, someone like Meryl Streep out there <laughs> talking about, you're going to have more than just the trades. It's going to be on Entertainment Tonight. It's going to be right. on, like, the World News at some point. It's going to be a big deal, and you don't want, you know... For example, ABC World News, David Muir taking off on July 4th and maybe the second, third, or fourth in control there conducting the interview. Robin right. Roberts isn't going to be talking to Meryl Streep on you know July 4th. And you don't want everybody at the cookout not exactly caring so much that Twitter is down <laughs> when, you need, when you need a Twitter <laughs> uprising. Right. Yeah, it's just a shame we won't be able to read all about uh, what's going on on Twitter because there are limits now. And, yeah. And I'm not paying a dime to that man. <laughs> anyway, Michael, we did have the DGA ratifying its deal with the studios, something that we discussed and we, we went over the studio deal and I was making fun of it a second ago. But, yeah, what 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 does this necessarily mean uh, for the WGA and SAG labor talks? Uh not much as long as they stick together, but as far as the DGA goes, uh, they were able to cut their deal. They did ratify their deal. I know there was hope within uh, the WGA specifically that there would be a, at least a, a significant enough voting block to like raise some eyebrows that the DGA may not ratify this deal and may st- stand strong in unison with SAG and with the, DG, uh, the WGA, but that didn't happen. 87% of voting members did vote to ratify. That's an overwhelming majority, and now that new collective bargaining agreement, which we talked about uh, either the last ORC or the one before that, is in place between the DGA and the AMPTP. But, you know, as far as what does it mean for WGA and for SAG, I think it's a good jumping off point, which is a case I made last that when we talked about this deal going down with the DGA. But, uh, I again, you know, like you said, it's there's ideas of human decency at stake here that, you know, shouldn't have to be negotiated. 
Oh boy. So nothing is solved and we're all still angry. It sounds to me. Yeah. 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 Well, let's talk about how much money (laughs) the uh, film industry is losing right now because the studios aren't the best decision makers these days, Michael. But uh, just in, you know, just to liven things up, I'll review a couple of these movies as well. So this is a box office slash make the case segment because you saw a lot of these at the top of the box office, even though their numbers, like you've alluded to, aren't that great. Indiana Jones and the Wet Diaper, 60 million three day opening, a 70. 2 million four day opening 80 million estimated overseas this was thought to maybe do 100 million or the hopes at least to do 100 million domestically it's going to do 150 worldwide on a four day opening projected five day domestic is 82 million you saw this mike uh do you like it at all does it have anything so look dial of destiny is a superior film to crystal skull uh it's a solid b minus but sadly and we expected this much. This Indiana Jones film is nowhere near the first trilogy. I mean, it's so it's so clearly below that. And look, I mean, the obvious negatives, he's too old. Like, I just cannot suspend my disbelief yeah. for an 80-year-old Harrison Ford, even though he looks great in this. Like, he's just in his boxer shorts, like most 80-year-old men, by the way, that I've met <laughs> uh, for, like, the first 10 minutes of the movie. But this guy would have broken every bone in his body. <laughs> and how do I know that? Because I would have broken broken every bone in my body, and I'm in my late 30s. Uh, if I'm jumping off of horses and climbing cave walls and punching giant bad guys, are you like, are you kidding me? So most of this movie is a chase scene. It's just like one endless chase scene, and that's mm. kind of similar to the initial trilogy. And I get that, but if you got an older hero, it should be more chess, not checkers. It right. should be. More of the Tomb Raider puzzle stuff, or, or I guess the Tomb Raider video game rather than the Tomb Raider movie. Right. Uh, movies, That's a good way to put is. it. So this is two hours and 22 minutes, and it's definitely 30 minutes too long. And it would be a very cost-effective 30 minutes cut here because it's all, a, it's all this big set-piece extravaganza cuts that would come out and a lot of money would come out so instead of that 295 million dollar budget it might be down to a a reasonable 200 million dollar budget for christ's sake Uh, the chase scenes are just too much and again you know you have an 80 year old star here i just don't buy what he's doing and finally the film gets lost in act two so it's too long the the plot gets into wild goose chase territory although i think they do a nice job of salvaging it and act three is very good so the positives here like nostalgia buttons my my nostalgia buttons got pushed there are so many fun reprisals and callback scenes to iconic things from the original trilogy when's the last time you saw the originals yeah i probably watched it five ten years ago with one of my younger brothers like out of college you know maybe maybe it was ten years ago out of college, fresh out of college. I think I, I showed my brother okay. Daniel. So, like, this is a shameless thing for me, that, but I don't care because I just, I love the original trilogy. I, I really do, and I'm in for the remix here. And then James Mangold's just a darn good director. So, like, Dial of Destiny delivers franchise goods. I mean, a lot of the chase scenes are really engaging. Uh, they went too long, but they are engaging. I love the 1969 New York City, we landed on the moon parade. I mean, that's a that's a fun <laughs> chase scene. I, I like the actual MacGuffin here, too. Like, the dial plot is intriguing, for sure. 
and uh, it's not maybe it doesn't have the juice of the Ark of the Covenant or the Holy Grail, but the Dial of Destiny is is something I want to see find and I want to have fun, you know, putting that thing together. So the Ovaltine of Truth, the Ovaltine of it's better than the Ovaltine <laughs> mail by letter that uh, Ralphie sent out. Let's just put okay. that. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, it's a great ensemble. Like the non Indiana Jones characters get a lot of shine here. You got great villains with Mads Mikkelsen and his henchmen. You got Phoebe Waller Bridges doing a lot of cool stuff, and she gets all this undue criticism online. I don't get it. Like. She's a fun character. She's driving most of the story and most of the action herself. It's just as much her movie as anybody's. And I look, I don't love like the act two act two stuff with her. There's a couple off notes there, but that's a quibble. I, I thought Phoebe Waller Bridge did did a beautiful job. And Mike, like I said, they land the plane here. It's a very satisfying conclusion. I feel it's a satisfying franchise conclusion. So like a, this is a low B B minus. The problem is the first trilogy was so darn good. Does it set itself up for more sequels? Uh no. Pro- not with I mean, not with Harrison Ford. I, yeah, I mean, no, look it, look it. This yes, if this movie made two billion dollars, they could have made a sequel to it. Okay. But I don't it's they're not. Right, right. Well, that's a bigger story and a bigger topic we're gonna talk about here in this box office report. But yeah, I mean, why aren't people seeing it? What's your guess? I think the B.O. boys kind of hit this on the head. Harrison Ford is... <laughs> and they're not going out of a limb. We've said this. He's too old. <laughs> but but th- they don't want to see a sad, washed-up character. Top Gun Maverick, and shout-out to Pat on this, Top Gun Maverick was a joyous celebration of, you know, great old times to great old music, that old time of rock and roll from the original Top Gun in 1986. It made you feel good. It made you feel good about loving Top Gun from 1986. And Top Gun Maverick was like this celebratory thing, whereas Indiana Jones is like, God, he's old. Jesus, it sucks Nobody wants to watch Ric Flair bump anymore in the ring. Nobody wants to watch Harrison. Yeah, they get to a point where it's just, you don't want to be the guy who's on screen or uh, in the ring being like, hey, I remember when he was great. It's sad. Yeah. And this movie, but I mean, look, I, I take, I feel of two minds about it. Like that's a big part of the reason I don't want to see Indiana Jones is because I just can't, like you said, I can't suspend my disbelief and I don't want to see Harrison Ford doing that. But I don't begrudge Harrison Ford at all. Like, get your money, cash your check. Good well, for you. The movie leans into it. It's part of the plot. I, and, it has to be. Yeah, I would think. And, and they they bring it to as satisfying a conclusion as you can get. I would say. So he dies, is what you're saying. Okay. I'm not on. saying anything. <laughs> Watch the movie for yourself, folks. Uh, but it worked. I would say it, it worked. All right. Well, that's a higher grade than I was expecting, to be mm. honest from you. But you also... Me too. You, you tend to paint with rose-colored glasses sometimes. I will say that as well. I uh, I can. I can do yeah. that. All right. Let's talk about more about the box office. One of the few hits that the theaters have had is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse that did another $11.5 million across its three-day. It's up to $607 million worldwide on a $100 million budget. Strong. That'll get a sequel. Absolutely. Um, that's doing well. Something not doing as well is Elemental. Another $11.3 million for Elemental. That's up to $191 worldwide, but Pixar's production budget for this movie was 200 million cutting some losses it's held fairly strong for pixar but it just didn't start hot enough that's a problem yeah Eh, could use more sex maybe 
I uh, agree. I agree with you for once. <laughs> no hard feelings came in fourth. Seven and a half million dollars domestically. Jennifer Lawrence comedy that's going to cross fifty million worldwide soon. But again, we're talking about a, a movie that had a forty-five million dollar production budget. But you saw this one as well, Mike. So the first half of No Hard Feelings is really funny. There's way too much given away in the trailers. However, which is definitely a pet peeve of mine. I yep. know you you get bummed out when that happens yep. too. I wish I didn't watch any of the trailers for No Hard Feelings. In fact, so that that's a bummer because a lot of those scenes, those would have been laugh out loud moments where I would have really lost it. But the, the setups are great. The movie is at its best with this premise, which is a true premise, and you have developed rounded characters heading into it. So I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the, you know, the premise playing out in this movie. The problem with No Hard Feelings is it gets bogged down in realism for the last hour and responsible responsibility for the last hour. And it's yes, it's sweet and moral and ethical, and that's great. But don't sell me on the outlandish premise, the outlandish comedy in that regard. I, I want, I want, I want this movie to be as wacky in terms of a finale as it started. And yes, Knocked Up and Step Brothers, they all got you know, bo- you know, they all got their montage of this person picking their life back up, right? Mm-hmm. However, you still get the Catalina wine mixer. You still get the crazy <laughs> delivery sequence with all the friends in the delivery room of of those movies. I mean, and if they you hid go- those enough, you didn't know those were coming. They weren't given away in the trailer. <laughs> if you get if you get this, you know, movie that's based on raunchy comedy they save some of the set pieces for the end saving for forgetting sarah marshall you still even in the epilogue you get some wacky and wild stuff you get the age of aquarius and 40 year old version girls trip you still get a dance off and uh you still get a bar fight i can name movie after movie caddyshack you got the caddy tournament uh, bridesmaids you get the wilson phillips performance what are you getting super bad super bad i don't remember super bad that's a good and that movie the whole movie's nuts that's a good question true. i wonder hell? i wonder how much was given away in those trailers i can't remember but super bad but... doesn't i mean you get some of them at the mall and i'm not spoiling anything but there's some dose of reality because they're going off to college or whatever but look at i mean this movie is is wild for for its first hour and like the online complaints about the skinny dipping scene is just my brain is short-circuiting and no hard I haven't feelings. Seen like, the, I, I'm going to be honest I, I am not the last month or so I have not spent on Twitter or any social media site so I am way behind you're I'm better sort off. Of criticism there I I'm happy for it but like what have they been saying what's been going on uh, they've been saying like why would she do this why would Jennifer Lawrence, or why would a Oscar character? winner Jennifer Lawrence? Why would she? Because need she to do wants this? to do whatever she wants. Because she can do whatever she wants. Yeah, and let her own it too. Especially yeah. after the whole. Drama right. I, this with is the leaked this photo. is what I said too. Like, if she and we know she was very upset when that whole uh, leak happened, where all these celebrities had their their private pictures leaked to the the public, and like, if she's bearing any sort of nudity in this, good for her. It's a flex. It's a yeah, flex show for statement. Of Especially after here. just having kids and all that? Hell yeah. <laughs> and that particular scene is a statement scene. It's the peak of the movie. It's it's funny. It's sexy. It's, it's I'm pretty it's, sure she's a producer on it, too. 
It's not. If I'm remembering right. It, to me, that that scene is what people are going to walk away from this movie remembering. And it's, and it's not because she's naked in it. It's because what she does in the scene. It's ludicrous. Yeah. So good for them, and I don't understand. Like, and then, then look at it. If you talked about it in a you know, in a shallow way, and and I have been known to have shallow thoughts <laughs> in my life. We and, are men still. And look at it. I I don't Not proud of it. Why would you, of all the things to complain about in this world, <laughs> as a man or as as someone attracted to the female form why would you ever complain about her people like dude yeah that's a fair assessment of things i think anyway the movie's like a b b minus and unfortunately i'm seeing a trend here with these raucous comedies and I, I saw a sneak preview of Joyride, and I'll review that while I'm at this here, because I had the same problem. You have this hour and 15 minutes to start Joyride. That's great, and it's and it's so funny. And you're just going from one crazy adventure to another. It's a road trip movie. You got one stop along um, China after the next. They're in China. The, these these four friends or, or cousins or whatever, and what a great what a great road trip movie. What a great friends movie. And then Joyride gets totally bogged down in some of the most serious shit imaginable. And we get like 20 minutes where you can't come back through from and laugh at. You Like I can't oh, no. laugh at the finale of that movie after the seriousness of those 20 minutes because it's it's important. And it's like there's no Catalina wine mixer at the end of, of, uh, of Joyride. And it's just, all right. I mean, yeah, you get a... You get a couple of worthwhile moments, and the movie actually works to an extent and in terms of its story, but the tonal shifts just did not work for me. And, and, and yet I could still recommend the movie. I mean, the goods are delivered in that first, you know, that first 75 minutes. So Joyride is a, a movie that gives you a lot of laughs. But so if the goods are still there, why are these movies not getting anyone to the theater? I, I, I wonder... I wonder about a lot of things. I wonder about comedy needing to come back at the movie theaters, making making the necessity for seeing a big screen comedy something that you have to do with a group of people. I, I, I think you could go and have a fun time at both of these movies, at least for the first hour. I just, you know, I wish there were complete films in a way. Mm. And I, I think comedies are going to break through. I think... Movie theaters are back in a big way. Comedies are going to break through again. They're a great communal experience. They're a great movie-going experience. It's great to laugh with a huge group. Just go to a stand-up comedy show, and we remember how many great times we've had at big comedy movies in our past. So this is coming back, and this was fun. It was fun to be an audience member for the first hour of each of these films. It's just like the last hour, we're bummers. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> we'll continue on with this box office update. Uh, movies th- that finished five through eighth on this list. I'll just talk about what the, where they are. Transformers: Rise of the Beast, blockbuster. It's up to three hundred eighty-one million dollars worldwide on a two hundred million dollar budget. Not Ruby good. Gilman, Teenage Kraken, animated film. It started with five point two million. It's up to twelve point seven million worldwide, but it has a seventy million dollar budget. Uh-oh. Little Mermaid is in seventh. It's up to five hundred twenty six million dollars worldwide, but it has a two hundred fifty million dollar budget. Another blockbuster. And the Flash, another blockbuster. 
It's up to $245 million worldwide after 17 days in theaters, but it had a budget that was either 200 or $220 million. Those are four heavy money titles, three of them legitimate blockbusters. Nobody is seeing blockbusters right now, save for, like, Spider-Verse. These tent poles are not working. It's, simp- it's just as simple as that. These $200 million-plus budgeted tent poles they're not working and the whole ip craze the whole comic book movie craze might be dying down a little bit to an extent we know this i just think people have to be given better reasons to go to the movie theaters overall and these movies are fine like the flash is a fine solid movie i i i can say that without cynicism it's i think it's the greatest comic book movie ever made <laughs> no I, I agree with you in that respect it's not but it's superior to like the shazam suit uh, or black adams i mean shazam 2 was unwatchable. okay but how yeah but how that's what i was saying how high of a bar are we talking to cross there look it, it's still a, a story that actually worked it's a tight story the flash and it was a good story in terms of its source material i just wish they stuck to the source material because that thing went for broke at least on, a, on an animated movie on Max, right? So why didn't they? Was it too adult? It's, it's definitely something that would have reset the universe, let's put it that Which way. Which they needed. They did not go that right. route. It's it's not a reset. I'd stop it. I don't know what... The, it's, that's all... That's all... Uh, what do they call that? Not swing. Uh, what is the the spin? That's all spin. Poppy Spin cock. zone. No, it's yeah. spin. It's bullshit. So... Yeah. I mean, The Flash works as a solid movie. I still don't get the whole Ezra Miller movie star thing. Like, to me, I texted you afterwards. I'm like, what's worse than Ezra Miller? Two Ezra Millers. (laughs) So annoying. Like, forget all the drama behind the scenes. I know people have very strong feelings about that. He is annoying as a character in this movie. And he's annoying because he's like... One out of every five jokes, like he's trying to be funny this whole movie. And yes, he'll sell a few moments. And he, he he's obviously a talented actor to do that. Like there's a joke about his running form. I almost feel like they listened to us. <laughs> they listened to me in a previous episode talk about his running form and how ridiculous it was. And they made that joke just for me. But for every one joke like that, there's another four cringy jokes that just fail and fall on their so fl- you, face. So you still are of the belief more so you think it's quality of movie keeping pe- and bad word of mouth keeping people out of theaters for the blockbusters than it is oversaturation? Or do the, you think it's more oversaturation? The Flash is the like fourth or fifth character in the DCEU, right? He's not a main draw. Yeah, so but you could argue neither was Iron Man. Iron Man was the first MCU character. I mean, he's not the main draw in terms of the comics back then because Spider-Man right. got spun off, but he was the driving force character in the MCU. And, and you're right. I mean, if you're that successful, the upteenth character can get can get its own spin-off and and it can work, but man, you're going into the deep bench here and that wasn't a successful franchise to begin with. I, so I just think, it, like, I don't think people had the juice for it. And then when you tell people it's been, essentially, the next season of this show has been canceled. There's just mm-hmm. not a lot of juice to watch the previous season. Right? I mean, if you if you get a series on television and you know it's canceled after this season, 
and you know they didn't culminate it properly. Are you watching that season of television? Mm. No, I, think it's, I mean, it's a, a fair point. It's a fair point. But, I, I, I mean, I just – look, there's obviously a problem right now at the movie theater. I mean, there's – none of – nothing is making no, – no blockbuster is making money. And it's not like that's having a trickle-down effect where, well, no blockbusters are making money, but at least Joyride's making a lot of money. Or at least, like, Teenage Kraken, Ruby Gilman is making a lot of money. Like, people just aren't going to the theaters enough to, to substantiate any of these budgets. I, I think you're hitting the nail on the head. These budgets are way too big. We don't need these VFX monstrosities out there. Like, th- this movie could have been much more pointed. Uh, it, it could have been, I mean, I don't know if the budget could have been sent down to a degree, but I don't know. Look, it, you, the bottom line is it's not worth, the juice is not worth the squeeze, to mm. quote a hated GM of ours. <laughs> it's not worth the squeeze. And this is a fine time. It's a fine movie. I think, I you know, I have a lot of pet peeves that don't work. for Like, they do the super speed in an opening sequence and the creativity is off the charts and I loved it, but you open Pandora's box and then you never address the possibilities of his super speed for the rest of the movie. Like that's infuriating to me. Like just do a creative super speed scene later in the film. And I get that it works with the total time travel shit, but what are we doing? So again, this is another movie that spoils way too much. The multiverse storyline I know I'm being overly negative here. The movie act, it's fun to watch Batman and the the Supergirl character. It's fun to watch the Flash and his backstory play out. All of this works. However, I think Spider-Verse is going to hit it better. I think, obviously, the the Spider-Man movie with the previous Spider-Man, that was a better, like, celebratory, you know, bring, bring the band back together kind of thing. This... This the nostalgia buttons didn't work quite as well for me here. There's a lot of other things that you get, but it's it's just not as good as the co- the comics could have could have made it if they stuck with that story. If you believe uh, first of all the facts, the Flash has done so poorly that even after just 17 days of being in theaters, uh, WB has dropped it from a lot of theaters. Um, and secondly, there was rumored to be a. Uh, Michael Keaton starring in Batman Beyond spinoff movie of this if the Flash did well and that's been chopped off as well so that of won't course. happen of yeah, course one, yeah the Else one. worlds that could have been and maybe should have been they, they don't have a chance and it, you're right it's irresponsible budgeting for a lot of these films I, I, I was gonna ha- make the point before during like the streamer streaming wars I mean the streaming wars and tentpole cinema collided for this just over leveraging of Hollywood into these into these huge budgets that they, they, it was a dumb move at the end of the day I wonder how much of it is due to the pandemic too because we had a lot of theaters holding a lot of stuff back and just kind of dumping it all at the same time in 2022 and 2023 I think we get a little short-sighted our, our memories are a little shorter I think this year is akin to more release date calendars of the past. Like, if we looked at the traffic of 2019, we'll see something more similar to what we're dealing with now in terms of big-budget movies. Back yeah, but 2019 back, back, back. Didn't, have, didn't have blockbusters every other week in the summer. I think it 
did, did it? but maybe maybe not to this level of decadence. And the fact that we're oversaturated, and Eric Weber always makes this point in the sense that if you have like a big superhero movie succeeding, you don't want to be the quote-unquote next superhero movie dealing with the same subject matter. So Spider-Verse succeeding and dealing with a lot of the same themes took the wind out of the sails of The Flash in a humongous way mm. to where I don't think people wanted to go in for another movie like that that was going to do it half as good half as well I should say Superman does good <laughs> and that's the next episode but alright uh, <laughs> wonder what let, Christian Bale's been up to let's let's be completionists here with the box office they, Asteroid City and, and others are, uh, are are doing okay I don't know but yeah Asteroid City's okay but again it's probably going to be a money loser. It's done twenty nine million worldwide. It's on a twenty five million dollar budget so far. Well, here's the thing about Asteroid City. They're banking on Wes Anderson's international draw, and when this movie does go international, it probably does like thirty million. So the fact that it's doing like twenty five, thirty million here in the states, it's going to do another thirty million overseas. That's most of its budget back, right? Or or whatever. It's yeah, it's I making mean, it's nut. It'll either probably just be. Just be a loser or, or, or make a modest profit. They announced profit. its PVOD for July 11th, Michael. Yeah. That's a That's, weird move, isn't it? Well, maybe they think they've milked all they can out of the domestic. And they want to let people know that they can watch this at home coming up. Or yeah. let his super fans know. And, and if Super Mario Brothers did $70 million by estimates and it's opening weekend alone on PVOD, even if Asteroid City did like fifteen. Yeah, but Asteroid City is not a gather around kids. Let's whatever. watch the latest Wes Anderson movie, to, especially this one. It's just weird. Even if it did 15 to 20 in its entire PVOD run over the next year, that puts Asteroid City in the black. Yeah, probably. That's true. That's true. That's true. Uh, something that's definitely in the black is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. That finished in 10th place. It's 835 million worldwide. Uh, the Boogeyman is up to 62 million worldwide on a 35 million dollar budget. Hmm. Past past lives uh, added 610 theaters in its fifth week of platform releasing. It's now up to six and a half million domestically, and hopefully we'll be getting to that in a full review soon. Otherwise, the blackening did 1.3 million in 13th place, 15 million total domestic rake thus far on a five million dollar budget. So that's three X, nice, and uh, that's heading into profit zone. The blackening, Fast X, not heading into the profit zone. No. It's also concurrently on PVOD, six ninety six million worldwide tally on a three hundred forty million dollar budget. That movie needed to do what is that one twenty plus nine a billion two at least billion, yeah <laughs> crazy or a uh, bil- is that a billion o two I should say yeah. and yeah. then Super Mario Brothers like we were inferring before one point one uh, three. Th- Excuse me, one point three three seven billion worldwide, and that's been the most profitable movie of the year thus far, uh, yeah, by any metric. It's doing well, and it provides hope for uh, Universal and for Nintendo both, which uh, they seem to be full bore ahead for the uh, Zelda uh, movie. I would also think that Super Mario Two is coming in the not too distant future. Yeah, 
let's let's say they're going to make a sequel to that one. <laughs> there you go. There's part one of this week's uh, Oscar race checkpoint done for you. As always, dear listener, what matters most to us are your thoughts. What do you think? What do you think the reason is for these uh, blockbusters not doing well over this summer in 2023? And what do you think about the movies overall in the top 20 box office list there? Uh, do you have any reviews for us? Do you have any input about any of the labor strife or the Academy news that we cover in this episode? You can leave us those and let us know all of that as well as any other thoughts, comments, questions, or concerns you have for anything else we do here in the MMO Empire. As always, on our social medias, we are Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook and Instagram at MM and Oscar on Twitter, Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com and on Reddit. We are available wherever you do hear podcasts. And if you're listening to us on either the Apple Podcasts or Spotify app, if you appreciate what we do here, if you wouldn't mind leaving us a five-star review, those help us out immensely. Thank you to everyone who has done so thus far. Michael, part one is down. We move on to part two soon. Let's have some words of wisdom to end on. Well, the words of wisdom are get a Blue Sky account, clearly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we'll have uh, Oscar Race Checkpoint, at least part two of this recording, HCA Midseason Awards, TCM nonsense, uh, and nine trailers <laughs> to review in the next episode. A lot of fun movies from Zendaya, Dune 2 and Challenge- Challengers, uh, and some Sony films that look a lot of fun, like Dumb Money and Craven the Hunter, uh, for sure. And yeah, we'll have uh, film studies on past lives, etc. Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Barbie Oppenheimer coming later this month as well. Boppenheimer. Yeah. That's a better than, what, Barbenheimer? Yeah. Boppenheimer. Boppenheimer. Boppen. Yeah. Twist it. Explode it. <laughs> the Boppen <Nuke> joke <laughs> and Joyride that was in the trailer. Still funny in the theaters, too, by the way. Guys, as always, when reality sucks, you can Boppenheimer with us. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar, trying to make award season year-round without the stuffiness. We will see you very soon. See ya. See ya.